I gotta love the 90s. The 90s were actually probably my favorite decade. Uh, we had real good music back then, not, not, not Drake or any of this auto-tune stuff they have now. Right, the Knicks, the Knicks were actually a good team in the 90s, which is pretty crazy to believe. And even uh, more importantly, we had milk ads and we had amazing commercials like the one that we just saw. Now, believe it or not, that commercial actually meant a great deal to me uh, because when I was about 13 years old, I was four feet 11. Now, my best friend growing up right here can, can attest to that. I was going into high school and more than anything, more than anything in this world, I desperately wanted to grow. So every single day on my way home from school, I would stop at the store, grab a quart of milk and take it to the head. So when I was about 13, 14 years old, I had you know, round cheeks and a baby face and I, and I looked about 10 years old and I was the farthest thing from being like the guy in the, in the ad in the mirror. Um, and this milk ad gave me hope. This milk ad gave me hope that one day I too could have a girlfriend with hot pants and a mullet and I too <laughs> could be big and strong one day. Now, in all seriousness, though, I remember probably one of the worst days of my 13-year-old life to that point uh, had been a doctor's appointment uh, going into the ninth grade. Now, every August, uh, I would go back to the doctor's office, and they would do the height and the weight and all these different things. And the whole summer, I had been praying, dear God, please, God, let me be five feet. That's the only thing I wanted. I get to the doctor, and he measures me, and I remember, like, the sound of his voice trying to cheer me up. It's like if you get a terrible haircut, and somebody's like, oh, it's not that bad, you know, like, if you turn like that, I mean, his voice got high, and he was like, oh, almost, you know, you're almost. I was 4'11", and I was devastated. Now, I didn't cry because I was a G back then, right? <laughs> but I might have I shed at least one or two thug tears outside the doctor's office. Now, here's the most crazy thing about being 4'11 uh, in, in eighth grade, going to ninth grade. My best friend was like six feet, right? And the worst part about being 4'11 was this. Other people were taller than me. Now, there was nothing wrong with my height. I, I, I was completely healthy. Um, there were parents that were there. That, there were probably parents that would have given their left arm for a kid that was completely healthy. And the only thing that was wrong was that they were a little short, a little undersized. And there were other kids that were sitting probably in oncology wards that would have given anything for their biggest problem in the world to be that they were just a little shorter than anybody else. But for me, it bothered me to no end. You want to know why? Because simply other people were taller than me. Now, I was perfectly healthy, but in relation to other people, I wasn't what I wanted it to be. Now, I picked up on something in society, uh, something that you know, a, a lot of us do, something I'm not too proud of for myself, is that this, a lot of us, we don't, we don't put our attention in what we have. We don't put our attention in who we are. We put ourselves in comparison with other people. Am I as tall? Am I as fast? Am I as strong? Am I as smart? Uh, do I have the same type of bank account? Uh, do I have the same level of college education? Am I as this or as that as somebody else? And we get caught up playing the comparison game. And guess what? The comparison game only ends in one of two places. It either ends in pride that you're better than somebody else, that you're smarter or taller or you have a better apartment or a better job or a better career or a better relationship, or it ends in disappointment. I don't have as good of this as somebody else. I'm not as smart. I didn't go to the same type of school. I can't sing as well. I can't dance as well as somebody else. And it gets us caught in this comparison trap. And brothers and sisters, this is a trap. It only leads to two places, pride or disappointment. 
Now, even though I grew out of being 4'11", and thankfully, uh, I, I finally have, you know, facial hair and all these different things, uh, I, I didn't grow out of the comparison trap. My wife gets on me all the time. Whenever I see somebody with a nice beard on the train, I'm like, yo, my beard is okay, but like if I had like the James Harden beard, like if mine was, then I would be, I'd be cool. Well, at the time, I was at the gym with my boy, and we were lifting weights, and there was this guy on the bench press, like, killing it. And I'm like, yeah, he's doing all right, but did you see his legs? <laughs> he, skips legs he skips leg day every day, and he has giraffe legs. And I actually felt pretty good about myself when I said that. But there's also the serious comparisons uh, uh, that I do, uh, comparing myself uh, as a husband. How do I, how do I rank uh, compared to other husbands? Or e even worse, man, how am I doing as a pastor? How do I rank compared to somebody else uh, as a public speaker? How do I rank compared to somebody else in terms of leadership development? How am I doing? And, and, and the first thing to go, the first thing to go is humility because the, uh, either I'm so consumed with how somebody else is doing uh, that I'm either prideful that we're doing better, or I'm disappointed that I'm not as good. I'm not as good of a leader. I'm not as good of a speaker. I'm, I'm not as charismatic as, I, as this guy or this person. Man, and it only leads to two places, pride or disappointment. And comparison is a trap. It's a trap that I think that uh, is universal. And you might not be concerned with being a public speaker or, or, or your bench press, but I, but I guarantee you that there's something that we're all looking to. And what is it for you? What is the thing that you're looking to uh, as a reference point to make you feel like you're okay? What is it as a, as a reference point that you are looking to to make you feel like you're okay, like you're doing okay in life, like you are where you're supposed to be at this stage in your life? What is it? Who is it that you're looking to? Now, the comparison struggle is, is one that is absolutely exhausting, and it's normally uh, us comparing our day-to-day, -day, our mundane life, to somebody else's highlight reel. It's us comparing our day-to-day -day mundane life, our mundane relationships, to somebody else's highlight reel that we get to see on a blip of a radar. Now, it might not come as a surprise, but God doesn't want us to take our cues. God doesn't want us to look at ourselves based on how well other people are doing or not doing. Now, what if it, what if it, uh, it didn't matter how well somebody else was doing or not doing? What if God didn't want you taking your cues about you from other people? What if God didn't want you taking your cues about how well you're doing, how well you are received, how much God loves you based on what other people are doing around this time? Are you like me, uh, the 411 kid that was only disappointed with his height because other people around him were taller? Now, Jesus told uh, a, a number of stories, and, and I believe that Jesus told this story uh, for a reason, because Jesus didn't want us to fall in the comparison trap, because it is a trap. And it only leads to one place, two places, pride or disappointment, but every single time it leads to one of those roads, and it is a trap every single time. Now, today, Lawrence just read the uh, parable of the vineyard, and we're looking at this scripture and looking at this story because when Jesus really wanted to grab somebody's attention, when Jesus really wanted to grab uh, people's attention and to let them know what it is uh, that they should be thinking about themselves, how they should think about God, Jesus never drew, took out a chalkboard and started giving people a lecture. You know, he didn't uh, get to a PowerPoint presentation looking at different slides. Uh, Jesus told people stories because he wanted to get their attention. And brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to grab our attention with this story. He wants to grab our attention with this story uh, because for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about um, 
why Jesus told stories, and he told stories for a number of reasons, but, but here are a couple that we've been, we've been writing on, and it's this, that Jesus told stories to show us who God is, who we are, and what we should do as a result, right? That makes sense? Jesus told stories to show us emphatically, not to tell us simply, but that we would feel it in a heart level of who God is, contrary to the way society might portray him, and who we are as a result, and then in light of who we are, what we should be doing as a people. Now, Jesus told this story, uh, and Lawrence read it a little bit ago. I want to kind of recap it a little bit and set the scene. So this is what's going on. Jesus is telling a story, and he says that, in the, you know, it's early in the morning, Starbucks is not even open, and there's a landowner that goes out to get people to work on his estate, to, to work on his vineyard. And he finds some people at the crack of dawn, it's like 5, 6 a.m., and they agree to work for a day's wage. Now, these were day workers, and, and day workers weren't under contract. Uh, they weren't under, you know, they didn't have a salary. They worked day to day, and they got the salary just for that day. So they should have been happy uh, to get picked up because it wasn't guaranteed that they would even get their day's wage. So uh, the landowner sees them on a corner, picks them up, and they're, and they're happy. They're happy that they're getting picked up to work for the day, and the landowner is still cruising around, right? So at first he does it at 6 a.m., and then 9 a.m. he picks up more people and agrees to give them an honest uh, wage for the day. And then at nine, after 9, at, at noon, he does the same thing. And then again, at 3 p.m., he does the same thing. And then again, at 5 p.m., he does the same thing. But all the while, the people that got there at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, had been working the entire way through. And this is the part that I love. It gets to the end of the day, and the landowner calls to his foreman, and he says, hey, line everybody up from last to first. And I want you to pay everybody their, day, their wage. So they line everybody up. The people that got there, like at 5 p.m., are in the front of the line, and he gives them one denarius. Now, the people in the back of the line are hyped, like, yo, he gave them a dollar? Bet. If he gave them a denarius, we about to get paid, because we've been here since 5 a.m., grinding, and I know he saw what we were doing. So they were clapping it up, like, yep, about to be on. He goes down the line, and they're looking over, smiling, and those smiles kind of even out a little bit, and they're like, okay, he's still giving people one denarius, but okay. But when he gets to us, it's definitely going to be different. He finally gets to them, and he gives them one denarius. Now, immediately, they get upset. They're like, yo, how in the world are you going to make us, uh, you're going to give us just the same thing that you gave them, even though we've been working all day in the heat of the sun, and you gave us the same thing you gave to them? The landowner responds, yo, don't I have the right to do with my money what I want to do? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? Now, here, here's how Jesus would, would have told it to you guys, you modern city people. Jesus would tell it like this. There's a Craigslist ad for an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment right near the train. Like, when they say steps away, this one is actually steps away and not like 10 miles away from the train. You go to the apartment, you have your papers with you, you have your credit report, your credit's kind of shaky, but even though your credit is shaky, uh, you go to the landlord and he says, hey, there's an apartment, brand new, first floor, doorman, $1,000 a month. And you're thrilled, you're like, $1,000 a month? Great, please, put your name in a hat. He says, the apartment is yours, it's all yours. Just sit right here for a little bit and wait. I got a couple more appointments. And you're sitting down, texting everybody, like, yo, fight night at my house. We go like, then somebody else comes in. Somebody else comes in, and uh, he, the landlord comes downstairs and says, all right, two-bedroom apartment, $1,000. And 
And you're like, oh. <laughs> wait, wait, did you just say a two-bedroom apartment for $1,000? And I'm, I'm giving you 1000 for a one-bedroom. Landlord says, I said, wait right here. Then somebody else comes in, three-bedroom apartment, $1,000, sir, it's all yours. And then you grumble to the landlord, like, yo, yo, how, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody is giving, like, is, it, are these, is this a trap house? Like, why are we paying? <laughs> how are you going to pay $1,000 for a three-bedroom apartment, brand new landlord, I mean, doorman, everything, you know, gym and a swimming pool and all that good stuff? And you would grumble to the landlord, and you would say, it's not fair. And the landlord would say to you, don't I have a right to do with my building what I want to do with my building? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Now, envy is, a, is an insidious disease. It's a virus, and it lives in almost every culture around the world. It's in tyrants, and it's in toddlers. It's in the political uh, uh, arena, it's in the classroom, it's in sports, it's in science, it is all over the place. Envy is basically this, I see what you have and I want it. And there's a couple of things that envy does in our lives that uh, I, I truly believe are completely dangerous and God does not want us living like this. The first thing and probably one of the most dangerous things it does is it doesn't let us appreciate what we do have. It makes us miss out on the good that we do have. Now, in the story that I just told about the apartment, any one of us would have been thrilled to get a one-bedroom apartment for $1,000. Near the train, thrilled, completely through our minds, thrilled. But that, that excitement, that joy, that happiness about what you did have would turn to frustration and anger only because you looked to the side of what somebody else had. Now, immediately, you would be so happy about your one-bedroom until you realize Somebody got a two-bedroom. Somebody has a bigger apartment than you did for the same price. Now, envy causes us to miss out on the good that we do have. Envy causes us to, to lose sight of the good things that God has given us. Envy causes us to miss out on all of the things that we have presently in our life only because we're looking to the left and to the right, and we're not focusing on the things that we do actually have. Now, I want to dig in a little bit here. What is it that you have that you're not grateful for because you're looking around? Is it, is it your kids? And you're looking at other parents, and their kids are potty trained by six months and reading in French <laughs> by the time they're two. Is it your job? Is it other people in relationships? Is it the fact that you haven't saved up nearly what you thought you should have saved up, and other people seem like they have it all together? What is it? What is it that you're looking to for in other people as a reference point to see whether or not you're okay? Hey, and, and what are you missing in the process? What about your family are you missing out on? What about your friendships are you missing out on? What about your relationship are you missing out on only because you're looking to the left and you're looking to the right? Now, a day laborer, as we see in the text, uh, uh, the people that the landlord, I mean the landowner employed were day laborers. And here's something about day laborers. They were not entitled to anything. Right? So a, a, a landowner could easily have gone up to the corner and said, hey, I don't like your hat, you're not going to work, and that would be it. Right? They weren't uh, entitled to anything, and the fact that they got something in the first place should have made them happy. The fact that they were picked, the fact that they were selected to have uh, a day's wages should have made them appreciate what was going on, but the reason they didn't celebrate what they actually did have was because they were looking at other people, and they were judging themselves based off other people. Second thing envy does is it denies our uniqueness. 
Now, Scripture says that God has uniquely shaped us. God doesn't make clones. Um, God doesn't make mistakes. God has uniquely shaped you to be you. Acts 17 and 26, it says that God predetermined the, the bounds and the time of your inhabitants, meaning God determined when you'll be born to this family, and he did it for a reason. And to envy somebody else that has a different background than you, a different life story than you, denies the uniqueness in which God created you. God created you on purpose for a reason. Ephesians 2 and 10 says that, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us. God has specific things intended for you based on the background that you have, based on the upbringing that you have, based on the circumstances and the experiences that you have, and God has a specific work for you to do. But guess what? You want to know the biggest enemy, the biggest threat to you accomplishing God's will in your life is looking at somebody else to deny what God is doing in your life uniquely, on purpose, intentionally. And we, we deny God's uniqueness. We deny our uniqueness. We're basically telling God, God, you messed up. When you made me, you messed up because you should have made me from that neighborhood. You should have given me this family. You should have not allowed me to go through this. And, and I'm not trying to undercut or undermine some painful things that have happened. I, and please don't hear me as saying that. But what I am saying is this. God did not make a mistake in your life. And that God is the only one that we, we are not, you know, there's a word that goes around Christian, Christianity called sovereignty. Now, sovereignty basically means that God doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have to answer to anybody. But God is the only one that can work all of the things in your life. Even the things that feel uh, like they are out of place, he can work those things for good for those who love the Lord. Romans 9 and 20 says like this, who are you, a mere human, uh, a mere human being to criticize God? Should a thing that was created say to the one that made it, why have you made me like this? Envy also divides our attention. Envy uh, divides our attention. Now, we can't follow God's purpose for our lives and something else. We can't follow, you know, God's purpose and God's plan for our life and what other people are doing. And envy divides our attention. Jesus says like this in Matthew 6 and 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, in that scripture, you can, you can sub substitute that word money for almost anything. You cannot serve both God and fame. You cannot serve both God and status. You cannot serve both God and your relationships. You cannot serve God and your boyfriend, God and your girlfriend, God and sex. You cannot have a divided interest. And this is, this is what envy does to us. It divides our interest. Instead of being focused on the purpose that God has for your life, on the, the plans, the will of God for your life, we're focused on what other people are doing. What's our goal? What is the one thing that we need to make us feel significant? And if it's anything other than the will of God for our lives, we're going to have a divided interest. Now, the other thing that envy does uh, is the catch-all phrase, envy leads to every other sin. Now, uh, envy leads to every other sin. And sin, in, in one translation, means to miss the mark. That the reason that you and I could be missing the mark in our lives isn't because something inherently wrong with you. It's because you're not looking where you're going. Now, one of the things that, you know, I grew up playing basketball, and, you know, it's common knowledge that you have to look where you're shooting. You have to look in the direction that you want to go. You can't just take a jump shot with your eyes closed. Uh, you can't do any of these things. You won't perform well unless you're actually looking at, at the goal and what you want to do. And when we take our eyes off of that to everything else, it causes us to miss the mark. James 3 and 16 says it like this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, 
There you find disorder and every evil practice. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will have uh, disorder and every evil practice. The comparison trap. Envy, looking to the left and to the right, man, it, it can infect everything in your life. Now, how is it that we can root envy out of our lives? How is it that we can uh, not get caught up in the comparison trap? How is it that we can live a life where we're not succumb to looking to the left and to the right and what everybody else is doing, and that we can focus solely on what God has us to do? Uh, I think we see these answers in Matthew 20. And the first answer is, um, is a pretty blunt one, and it's a pretty frank one. It just means this. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Right? This is the, the problem that we see here uh, in the text in Matthew 20, 9 through 10. It says, those who hired, those hired last came up and were given a dollar. When those who were hired first saw that, they assumed that they would get far more. Now, here's the problem right here we see in the text. Those, those two words, saw that. What are you looking at? What are you noticing? What are the things that are, that are giving you, that are catching your attention? Now, those things right there are going to cause us to compare ourselves to other people, and we need to stop doing that now. Now, every, you can never stop a bird from flying over your head, right? But you can stop that bird from building a nest on your hair, especially if you don't have hair like I do. <laughs> now, every single time you, you, you have a thought in your mind that comes up where you are starting to compare yourself to somebody else, stop it. I want you guys to, to write down James 3.16, and I want you, every single day this, this week, I want you to wake up, and I want you to read that the first thing in the morning. And I want, that, I want you to commit this to be a memory verse for you. James 3 and 16, and every single time you feel yourself starting to compare yourself to somebody else, I want you to read this to yourself. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there, will you, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Envy will never, ever, ever lead. Comparison will never, ever lead to a good place. It will only lead to pride or disappointment every single time. So never compare ourselves to others. And hear me clearly on this. God has not called me to be the best pastor in Harlem, the best pastor in uh, New York, the best pastor on this block. God has called me to be the best Jordan, period, right? The best person I am, given all my history, my, uh, my background, my weaknesses, my strengths, uh, my family, my heritage, all of these things, God has called me to live in light of that. And God has not called you to be the best of anything. God has not called you to have the best apartment or the best relationship or the best job or the best career or the best 401k. God has called you to live in light of your experiences, in light of your history, in light of your family, and to do the best with what you have. See, all of us are going to be judged one day, and nobody's going to be judged on somebody else's standards. Nobody's going to judge, uh, you know, nobody's going to judge you based off of somebody else. They're going to ask, God's going to ask you, what have you done with what I gave you? What did, what did you do with what I gave you? There's another parable that Jesus tells, uh, the parable of the talents. And in this parable of talents, Jesus gave one person five, and the other one three, and the other one one. And at the end of it all, the, the judge was not coming to judge based on, um, he wasn't expecting everybody to produce the same amount. He was expecting people to do with what they had the best that they can have. And God doesn't want us comparing to the left or to the right based on what somebody else does. He's simply going to ask us, what have you done with what I've given you? What have you done with what I've given you? So we need to stop comparing ourselves to others. Number two, uh, we have to be grateful for who I am and what I have. We have to be grateful for who I am and, and what I have. 
Now, here's what Jesus wanted to show us about God, and here's what Jesus wanted to show us about ourselves, and here's what Jesus shows us uh, about what we should do. And here's the craziest part about reading the story. I bet almost every person in here, when you heard the story the first time, you put yourself in the position of the person that got there first. But what if we retold the story? What if you were the person that got there last? Would that change the story? Would that change how you felt about the landowner? Would that change the way you felt about how the landowner was acting? Now, why is it that we are always quick to put ourselves um, you know, in the position of, 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 of the hero of the story? Uh, why, are we the one, why are we so quick to put ourselves you know, as the person who got there first, when in reality, that's not us? And I think Jesus was telling the story to show them this. What if you got there last? Wouldn't you want grace? Wouldn't you want somebody to give generously? What if you sat on the corner all day long waiting for somebody to pick you up, and you got there at five, and you worked hard for an hour, and they gave you a day's labor? Wouldn't that make you feel good? Of course it would. But when we put ourselves in the first position, when we put ourselves in the position of people that got there first, it causes us to be ungrateful for what we actually do have and who we are. Now, being ungrateful for where you are in life or what you have is actually the, probably the most counterproductive thing in the world. And I'm going to prove it to you right now. Any, nobody in here who would go on Match.com would put as your dating profile, I'm just here because I hate being single. Right? That's not going to get a lot of dates. If you're on Tinder, that's not going to get a lot of swipes, whatever direction that's supposed to be swiped, right? If you're looking for a new job and you put on your resume, I just want a new job because I hate my other one. Being ungrateful for where you are is actually one of the most unattractive things in the world. And it sets us back, it holds us back, and it's a prison. And we get caught in that prison because we start comparing ourselves to other people. And it is the most counterproductive thing that we can do. God doesn't want us comparing ourselves. God wants us to be grateful for where we are uh, with, in light of all the things that he has given us, all the things that God has not given us. God wants us to be grateful in the position we are. Now, this is not to say that you should not want good things for your life. You should absolutely want good things. You should want a good apartment, a good job, good relationships, health, and all of these things. These are amazing, and I hope you get them all. But until you do, until the doors are open for you to have the things that you want, trust that the God that, that loves you is doing this like this for a reason and to be grateful for what you have and who you are. 1 Corinthians 4 and 7 uh, through 8 says it like this. Isn't everything you have and everything you are sheer gifts from God? So what's the point of all this comparing and competing? You already have all you need. Now, here's the third thing that we see from the scripture, and this packs the, the heaviest of the punches, and it's this. I must trust God when life seems unfair. Now, at the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And what Jesus was trying to get to in this story is this. Envy is ultimately a heart problem. And the, pre the problem that Jesus came to address uh, in the story weren't the amount of wages uh, that were being paid, but the fact that they did not trust the owner. They didn't trust the owner that was gracious to people. And the workers felt like they were being treated unfairly. It says, these last workers put in only one hour, and yet you made them equal to us, we who slaved all day under the scorching sun. And the owner says, friends, I'm not being unfair. I paid you exactly what we agreed on. Take your part and go. What business, business is it of yours if I want to pay others the same as I paid you? Don't I have the right to do, with my own, do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? And here's the, part, the problem with envy and the problem in our, in our hearts is this. Deep down inside, we don't trust God. We don't trust the character of the person 
uh, that is supposed to be ca uh, caring for us. And just in the same way that these uh, workers didn't trust the character of the, of the landowner, and what the landowner was trying to get across to them, and what Jesus is trying to get across to us is this. God gives, different, uh, God gives us things not based on how well we've done. God has a much different rubric than the way we do. God doesn't grade like this. And if you measure yourself based on that standard, you're going to have a difficult time understanding God. You're going to have a difficult time understanding God's role in your life. And you're going to have a really difficult time feeling loved by God. See, God doesn't work by that standard. And it's a very difficult thing, and I, I absolutely get it. It's not easy to trust God when it, it, it feels unfair. It feels like other people haven't, you know, done all the things that you did, and yet they seem like their lives are going fantastically. Um, and, and I absolutely get it, right? So I know a lot of you guys personally, obviously, and um, this past Thursday uh, made four years from the day my, my late wife passed away from cancer. And I remember how it felt to feel like, uh, God, this is not just painful, but this is the most unfair thing that I've ever experienced. I remember speaking to one of my friends, and one of my boys, um, you know, he called me to try to encourage me. And this is when my, my late wife first got diagnosed with cancer. And I remember being so angry on the phone. And I was angry not because he said anything wrong or not because he was being, you know, he was a jerk or anything like that. Uh, I knew that this guy was having an affair on his wife. And he's on the phone trying to encourage me, and I'm boiling on the other side of the phone. I'm thinking, my wife is laid up in a hospital room. My wife is on chemotherapy, and, you know, and, and I've been nothing but faithful to her. We have an amazing relationship. And you, you're out cheating on your wife, and your wife is healthy. And not only that, you just found out she was pregnant. Congratulations. And it seemed like it was the most unfair thing in the world, that I was working way harder on my marriage than he was, and yet my wife is laid up in the ICU and your wife is pregnant and you guys are living a good life. It's extremely difficult to trust God when life seems unfair, but brothers and sisters, it is not a problem of what's going on around you. And taking your eyes onto the left and to the right is going to cause you to miss out on what God is trying to do in your life. It is a very difficult thing to trust God when it seems unfair, but our faith, our heart, our trust in God is the real heart of the problem. There are things in our lives that God hasn't given us for reasons, and we don't always know the answer to that reason. And you're going to go crazy if you're trying to figure out what that reason is. Why is he married? Why is she married? Why do they have this job? Why do they have this apartment? Why do they have this lifestyle and I don't? Listen, that's a roller coaster that will never, ever, ever end. It's only going to lead you to pride or disappointment. And every single time, it's going to distract you from what God is really trying to do in your life. But what if God doesn't want us taking our cues based on how, you know, we see the world, based on how well other people are doing? What if God wants us to fix our, our minds, fix our hearts on something that's more permanent? What if God doesn't want us on a roller coaster of comparison? What if God wants us to, to judge how well we're doing? Or what if God wants us to judge uh, how we're doing in, in, in his eyes, not based on uh, comparing ourselves to other people, but on something completely different altogether? God doesn't want us on this roller coaster. And Jesus came so that you and I wouldn't have to guess whether God loves us. Jesus came so that you and I would never have to guess whether or not God wants the best for you. Jesus came so that you and I would never have to guess or theorize or speculate whether or not God has the very best planned for you. Now, the best way I know how to tell this is another story. Uh, it's a story about uh, a railroad worker. Um, it didn't actually happen, but this is a, a good story and a good way of putting it. So the railroad worker is, is there, and every single day he changes the tracks 
as trains come and go out of the station. And one day, uh, as he's upstairs in the booth controlling the tracks, uh, one of the controls in his booth gets stuck. So he has to go down manually and change the track. He gets down to the track, and the trains are about 10 seconds from hitting each other in a different direction. And he goes down to change uh, the track, and he sees his son on one of the other tracks. And he has a choice. I could either run and rescue my son, and these two trains are going to crash into each other, or I can let my son die so that others could live. Now, those who are speeding on the train have no idea what's going on, and the, and the railroad worker stops, and he uh, sacrifices his son, his only son, so that other people can live, and he changes the tracks, and those people go through speeding on the train, drinking tea, eating biscotti, having no idea what's going on beneath them. And this is a story that we get from Scripture, that you and I, you and I were on a speeding train towards destruction, and there was a man that had a, a choice to make. He could sacrifice his own son so that you can live, or he can let you crash and die. And this man let his own son, this man let his son die so that the people can live. Now, here's what I don't want. I don't want us living a life on a speeding train, neglecting the gift, the sacrifice that was given by a father uh, of his only son so that we could live. I don't want us fixing our identity. I don't want us fixing our lives. I don't want us fixing how well we're doing or taking cues from how somebody's doing on the left or to the right. But look at the Father. Look at the Father that has given you his son. Look at him for your approval. Look at him for how much you are loved. Look at him for how much you are accepted. Look at him to be able to trust him that you have a God. You have a Father, a loving, gracious Father. And this is the point of Jesus' whole story, saying, are you envious because I'm generous? Because the way I operate is I give people good things that they didn't deserve. And this is my nature. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want us looking to the left or the right. He wants us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This God that has given his son, Jesus, for you, he'll take care of us. Scripture says in, in Romans, uh, if he gave us his son, will he not graciously along with him give us all things? Romans 8. And God will graciously give us all things. Let's trust him even when it's difficult. Trust him even when, you know, life doesn't seem fair. Or trust him even when it doesn't feel like it's making sense. Because the nature of our Father is generous. And let us not look to the left or to the right. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the gifts that you give us. I thank you for your generosity. I thank you that, uh, God, we don't live uh, based on the standard of the world and looking to the left or to the right, comparing ourselves to other people. God, that stuff is fool's gold. God, don't let us get caught in a comparison trap. Uh, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, on the gifts that you have given us on your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.